Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Well, so in Atomic Habits, I refer to this as the plateau of latent potential. And it's something that's pretty common for a lot of habits. And, uh, you know, so you mentioned earlier that quote from the book about habits compounding over time. And I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement which is what I mean that like the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them over time. But it's not a linear curve. It's not a straight progression. Um, we think we, so a lot of the time we have this expectation that if we put in a little bit of work, then we'll get a little bit of results. So if we put in a massive amount of work, then we'll get massive results. And we, we think that it should be like this just linear step function going up. And it often is not that way at all. It's much more kind of like the hockey stick curve where there's like this valley of death early on and you're putting all this work in, but you don't really see any results. And the most, uh, I mean, this is a hallmark of any compounding process. The most powerful outcomes are delayed. You have to wait for them. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. James, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey man, you bet. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, so you're back here for a second time because we had such an insightful and thought-provoking conversation the first time. Uh, I know that you have a new book out, all of which we will get to uh, in just a little bit. But before we get into that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Hmm. Um, well, my dad has worked in insurance for, I think, 37 years now. Um, so he when he was very young and just got out of college, he played baseball all the way through college, just like I did. Um, and then uh, he played in the minor leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals for a little while. So, you know, as a kid, I wanted to be a professional baseball player too. And so looked up to him a lot. And then uh, after his baseball career was done, he uh, joined the insurance industry and has been there pretty much ever since. Um, he has a pretty outward facing job. He interfaces with like all the clients and insurance agents and he's like making calls and seeing people it's basically business development and marketing but as a result of this very social role which is also a good fit for his um, personality i think i probably learned a lot about interacting with people and like anywhere we go around town he knows somebody so um that uh like gregariousness or outgoing personality that definitely made an impact on me Mm -hmm. and just um he's really good in his job at being kind to people. Uh, like he knows all the names of the uh, kids for, you know, these different insurance. I mean, he's calling out hundreds of people. He knows like all their kids. He has pictures. They have pictures of us, like me and my siblings up in their office. Um, and he has pictures of them and, uh, and their kids. And anyway, just, uh, a really good, like people person. 
Um, my mom started out as a nurse. And then when I was very young, my sister got cancer. I was five, she was three, and my brother was six months old. And so my mom stopped working at that time uh, to take care of that whole situation. And then um, as my sister started to recover, she stayed home with us for the next, I think, like 10 years. And it wasn't really until I was in high school that she started working again. And at that point, she went back and became um, like an assistant in uh, preschool and kindergarten classrooms, but specializing specifically in kids who have autism or some kind of disability. Um, and so now she has done that for a few decades and, um, is working with those kids every day and, uh, is currently in a classroom with, um, I think eight autistic kids. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she's one of the, the teachers and like primary caregivers to them. And, um, I've learned a lot from her as well. I mean, she's very, my mom's the type of person who does not complain, even if the situation is not, uh, ideal. And so she's definitely a hard worker and, um, is used to she's used to like just bearing whatever burden is placed on her even if uh nobody it's kind of like invisible to everybody else because she's not complaining about it um so i learned a lot about like mental toughness from her and doing what your responsibility is and um just kind of like performing up to that standard and she's played a lot of different roles in in our personal life um and so uh yeah they they both have been incredibly formative in my experience and they're a great set of parents yeah so you opened the book by telling a story that you actually shared with me last time we spoke uh, about getting hit in the face with a, a baseball bat when you're a senior in high school. And what I wonder is when you have a moment like that, you still had the desire to get to the point where you wanted baseball to still be a part of your life to the point of, of becoming an All-American. After you were, were dealing with such a severe, severe injury, how in the world did you have the mental toughness and how did you even see a path to getting to, to where you ended up being or did you even at that moment? Mm. Well, uh, I don't know. Like in the moment, I, I wasn't thinking like, oh, I need to be mentally tough or I am mentally tough or something like that. I was just dealing with it day by day. And this is something I mentioned uh, in the introduction to the book, which is that like in a sense, my hand was forced. Um, I had to focus on you know the next moment or a small improvement or you know, I wouldn't have used this language at the time, but just getting 1% better each day or something like that. Um, because I, I didn't really have another option, right? Like I, it was such a serious injury. I mean, you know, I couldn't drive for eight out of nine months. I was placed into this coma overnight, had a bunch of seizures. Um, my first physical therapy session, I was practicing walking in a straight line. Like there, it was just the, the recovery was very slow. And because of that, uh, I had to just focus on these small ways to get better. And so I just tried to take it, you know, uh, one step at a time or piece by piece and focus on whatever that like point on the curve was that was just like right in front of me or the next thing that I could accomplish. And the biggest thing was just having some sense of progress. You know, if I, if I was making an improvement, even if it was really small, at least I could see how I was getting better. And that was really motivating for me. So I think more than maybe being mentally tough, I just tried to be positive and upbeat and focus on how I could make progress each day. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people who sometimes end up in those situations don't have the ability to to have that attitude and make progress? Like, why is it that they don't have the persistence to get through something like that? Hmm. I don't know. It's really hard to answer because it's so it's so difficult to distance yourself from your own experience in a situation like that. Like, all I know is that um, you know I had this really serious injury in this very difficult period, 
And for whatever reason, my response was to try to be positive about it. Um, and I don't know if that's genetic or something related to my personality and that's just kind of how I'm wired or if it was learned. And I had a lot of really good people around me, whether it's my family or teammates or coaches and that, you know, they kind of helped lift me up and carry me along a little bit, mm -hmm. probably some combination of both. Um, but I don't know. I, uh, it's hard for me to say like what would cause someone to not do that. Um, it's possible that if you, if you haven't seen that in some case, like if you haven't seen people uh, stand up to difficulties in their life like that, uh, then maybe it's hard to, to have a model to act on, you know, like, so I'm specifically thinking about injuries. Um, my, you know, my sister had cancer. She was a survivor. My grandfather, my basically my entire the entire twenty years that I knew him, I mean, he had four different heart surgeries and was essentially constantly dealing with some kind of health issue. Um, but both of those people uh, were central and pieces in my life, and they also were incredibly positive and upbeat and just like did their thing each day and didn't really complain about it. And so maybe maybe I had seen that already, and so I imitated it a little bit in my own experience. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm sure it was a variety of factors. Yeah. So you talked about uh, parents, you talked about family. What role did coaches play in who you've become today? I, I wonder this because uh, you know, I had a ninth grade band director who I think had a really, really transformative experience in my life, but it's only something I recognized like almost 30 years later. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think coaches play an incredibly crucial role in, uh, in life and they have because of how they... Um, where they're inserted into different people's lives. I mean, they can just make a big difference, especially the time that you have this coach, you know, like coaches and teachers, um, which I would kind of put into a similar bucket. Um, they interface with kids and young adults at really formative periods of time. So for me, I, some of my best teachers were my first through like fourth and fifth grade teachers. They were incredible. Um, I just had like one after the other it was really great. And so, um, I really benefited a lot from that from very good elementary school teachers. Uh, coaches, I had I had one year where I had a really fantastic coach, um, and uh, you know I played sports for played a variety of sports across eighteen different years. So um, a lot of the time I, I didn't have a really great coaches, um, but uh, it was the most instructive part for me for teachers was learning about caring, um, and seeing that someone else cared for me. That was like a really big thing. Um, for coaches, it was more about consistency and practice. You know, like I can still remember the very first day I showed up to our, our college baseball team and, um, we had our team meeting. And one of the first things I learned was that if you're five minutes early, you're 10 minutes late. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, okay, promptness and being ahead of schedule and being prepared is like really important in this program. And that rippled out into everything. Like if you weren't there 15 minutes ahead of time, if you weren't ready, you know, if practice started at six, you, that didn't mean you were like tying your shoes at six. It meant you were like on the line, ready to go at six. And um, so that level of discipline and responsibility, I definitely learned a lot from uh, my coaches in that realm. Yeah. So last time we talked, I remember something very distinctive that you said about going to college. And you said that you looked at the majors in front of you and you said, none of these are going to work for me. So you ended up designing your own major by just combining a bunch of different classes. And I, I wonder what it is about your life experience or your sort of programming that made you say, you know what, I'm not going to choose from the options in front of me because I see something different. Uh, what enables that and why isn't that more common? I think that that was one of the first entrepreneurial things that I really did. Uh, you know, looking back on it, that's like a very 
uh, entrepreneur type of decision where you're like, okay, here are the set of options and I don't really like any of those. So I'm just going to make my own. Um, and so I, I don't know why, uh, why some people do that and others don't. Uh, I think that they're one of the key aspects for me that drives that type of action or behavior is curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I definitely feel like it's wired into my personality to be curious and ask questions and kind of probe around. Um, and so as I started looking at the options for classes, I was like, well, I kind of, you know, like if I look at say like physics, well, like I'm interested in like three of these classes, but not the other eight. Or if I look at biology, like two of these sound really interesting, but the other ones, uh, aren't for me. And so I was like, well, what if, is, there, is there a way that I could just combine all the ones I like? And, uh, and so that was the, the option for designing your own major. And, um, I think that, there's also like this lateral thinking aspect that you see in a lot of uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, where they're they're kind of like looking for this trap door or this back way in uh, to getting what they want. It's like, well, and most people just take the world that is handed to them, but if you do this like kind of first principles thinking or lateral thinking exercise, you just like distill it all down to its fundamental parts, and then think about like what are the different combinations of ways you could put that together whether it's a major or a physical product or a marketing campaign, there are a lot of ways to do that type of thing and come up with a, an interesting or creative solution that works for you. And kind of, if it doesn't big, break the rules, it like bends the rules. Um, and uh, that type of thinking is very exciting and interesting to me. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk briefly about your creative process and your practice, which I think will make a a really sort of nice segue to talking about the concepts in the book. I think that the thing that has always struck me most about your writing in particular is how detailed and well-researched it is. Uh, That is, I think, the thing that like I look at it and it's it's something I aspire to, even though I I do a lot of reading and I weave a lot of my own uh, research for my reading. I look at that and I think, wow, this is really well done. So I guess one, how do you come up with your ideas? Two, how do you actually put them together in this way? Oh, thank you. Um, well, so I guess I'll just kind of walk through my writing process. Um, so the first thing is, I think that any you're coming across ideas all the time, right? Like maybe we're we talk in this conversation, and you say something that is interesting or sparks an idea for me or something like that. And I think you need to have a central holding ground where you just put all the ideas in your life, whether it's from a conversation or a book or whatever. And so for me, that's Evernote. Uh, so I have a, a notebook in Evernote just titled Articles. And whenever I come across an interesting idea, I just dump it into there. And sometimes it's just a title for an article. Sometimes it's like one sentence. Occasionally, I'll riff for a little while and it'll be a couple paragraphs. But um, all of that goes into the same folder. Then I typically write either earlier in the morning or before lunch um, or late at night. And, uh, whenever I'm sitting down to do that, I'll go to that list and start to look through all the notes that are in there. And I have literally hundreds at this point, it's probably six or 800 notes that are in that folder. And, um, I start to look for ones that connect in some way. So sometimes I actually have a couple articles that are kind of in process right now. They're just like holding grounds for ideas. Like I have one that I think it's just titled uh, Thoughts on Cultural Evolution. And so then like any of these thoughts about society and culture and stuff like that go into that note. Um, but then occasionally I'll go through and just try to find ideas that are on the same topic. So let's say that, you know, maybe I have five things that are related to creativity. So I'll pull those ideas and put them into the same note. And then uh, an article starts to kind of loosely take shape, but I can see like which holes are there and what, what things I need to research a little bit more. 
So then maybe I'll pick up a book or go do some research um, on like some of the things that are missing or some of the questions I have. And as that starts to build out a little bit and gets closer to like a thousand or two thousand words, um, then the article kind of, you know, I start to basically move it around in chunks. I kind of break it into like, say, all right, there are five sections in this article. It was kind of like the introduction. And then I make this point and then I make the next point. And then I have some kind of practical takeaway. And then there's the conclusion. And it's not always five pieces, but I, I kind of chunk the article out like that. And then I'm, you know, kind of like moving those chunks around, figure out like broadly, where do they fit? And once I get to that point, I usually put it into WordPress so that I can see what it actually looks like on the page when it's going to be published. And that's really when the real work begins for me. So all of that kind of precursor to getting to that point is mostly a collection of ideas and just trying to like get the general shape of the article. But I haven't really thought carefully about like the line by line writing. And once I get to this point, then I'll I'll start at the top and I'll read the first sentence. And if that sentence sounds good, then I'll read the second. If that sounds good, I'll read the third. And at some point, I'll get to a sentence that doesn't sound good um, or doesn't work well. And I'll edit that sentence. And then once that's done, I'll go back to the top and start again from the top and read it all again. And I just do that endlessly until I get all the way through the article. And so by the time I've finished... I mean, it's really not much of an exaggeration. I probably have read the article 50 or 100 times. Mm -hmm. um, and so what ends up happening is that it kind of like uh, the article sort of shapes itself or like writes itself in that way where I'm just I'm reading it out loud and seeing how it sounds each time I go through it. And usually I end up cutting a lot. Um, so like the most recent article I published, I think it's around 2000 words, but it started at 6000. And that's a pretty typical uh, result for me is that I'll cut an article in half or so. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that's mostly my process. I mean, I don't really consider myself a great writer. I think I'm a better <laughs> editor, but it's that, it's that process of editing and refinement. That's like the real work. Well, it's funny. I, I don't consider myself a great writer. I just say I'm a disciplined writer. Like I think mm. that's, you know, my, my key to that has been volume, which I know we'll talk about systems versus goals, uh, here. Cause I know you alluded to that in the book. Uh, one other thing, so the outside research, do you have a place where you document like the books that you're reading or any of that stuff so that you can weave it into stuff? Yeah, so I actually have a format for when I add things to Evernote. So I'll specifically say, let's say, for example, that um, so one great thing that happens for me a lot of the time now is I'll share an article and then a reader will reply with either a link I should read or a piece of research I missed or just an idea that they had. And so what I'll do is I'll put it into Evernote, but I will essentially format that piece then and say that little sentence, it'll be like, you know, a, a quote of two sentences uh, from that email they sent. And then I'll say from, and then I'll put the reader's name and then like maybe a link to either that email or the, the article that they pointed me to or something like that. So I effectively keep the sources in line as I'm adding them to Evernote. And so as the article is taking shape, uh, all of those things are right there for me. So I don't have to go back and look at them again. And then I, I like to have a lot of citations in my uh, articles and, and writing. So that's uh, somewhat rare, I guess, in the in the blogs here. I mean, a lot of times people just write whatever they want in their blog. But right. uh, but I, uh, I think that's important, um, not only just to cite the people who I get these ideas from, because almost, almost all the ideas I write about are not ones that are generated by me. Yeah. But, um, but also... Uh, it helps me for the process of writing a book because if I'm going to integrate uh, an article or utilize a piece of it for uh, a section of the book later, then you know all the sources can just come over easily. Yeah, 
Well, let's do this. Let's actually talk uh, about the concepts in the book. Uh, I think that where I want to start is with, with part of your story that I know, uh, you know, this is something you said in the book is that changes that seem small and unimportant at first will compound into remarkable results if you're willing to stick with them for years. We all deal with setbacks, but in the long run, the quality of our lives depends on the quality of our habits. With the same habits, you'll end up with the same results. With better habits, anything is possible. And I think you're exemplary of that in so many ways, because I remember having a conversation with you where you said you decided that you would publish twice a week. And I remember reading in the book, you said it was like from a thousand readers to 30,000 to now hundreds of thousands. Yeah, it was really that simple writing habit of publishing every Monday and Thursday that changed the trajectory of the business. Um, you know, so I wrote the first article on jamesclear.com on November 12th, 2012. Mm -hmm. And then I continued with that twice a week pace for the next three years uh, until I signed the book deal really was when I, I switched. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, the consistency was the biggest thing. Um, you know, and this is true. I, I think this applies not just to writing, of course, but to any area of life. But it's like, especially in the beginning, yeah, putting in your reps is one of the most important things. I mean, for an artist or a creator of some sort, you need to put in your reps so that you can kind of develop your taste so that you can figure out what your voice is as a writer, but you can apply it to other areas. I mean, if you go to the gym, like you need to just put in your reps and not worry about the weight so much or the results so much so you can build like a foundation of strength or so that you can be in a position to actually handle uh, greater stress later on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways you also, I think actually Srini, you've uh, written about this idea before as well, which is that the other advantage of putting your reps in is that you you kind of genius only shows up when you when you show up enough times to get the bad ideas out of the way, then every now and then a good one arises, right? So you kind of have to like create a lot of junk to come up with something really good every now and then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. I mean, that that has definitely my, been my experience. And it's funny because it was going back through your interviews that made me decide, okay, you know what, I've stuck to a 1000 words a day, I think now it's time to move on to publishing two times a week and, and seeing what happens. I think the, uh, the thing that gets in the way of most people is they get frustrated because they're not seeing a result from that effort. And is so often it's just like, all right, the inflection point is right around the corner, but nobody wants to stick with it. What would you say to people who are in that situation where they're like, okay, I'm doing this thing consistently. I've, I've done it consistently for a long time, uh, but I'm feeling a level of frustration that I didn't think I would. Well, so in Atomic Habits, I refer to this as the plateau of latent potential. And it's something that's pretty common for a lot of habits. And, uh, you know, so you mentioned earlier that quote from the book about habits compounding over time. And I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement, which is what I mean that like the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them over time. But it's not a linear curve. It's not a straight progression. Um, we think we so a lot of the time we have this expectation that if we put in a little bit of work, then we'll get a little bit of results. So if we put in a massive amount of work, then we'll get massive results. And we, we think that it should be like this just linear step function going up. And um, it often is not that way at all. It's much more kind of like the hockey stick curve where there's like this valley of death early on and you're putting all this work in, but you don't really see any results. And the most, uh, I mean, this is a hallmark of any compounding process, which is the most, uh, the most powerful outcomes are delayed. You have to wait for them. And so... I, I like to use the the story or the metaphor of heating up an ice cube. It's kind of like, you know, you're in a room, it's cold, you can see your breath, it's like 25 degrees, there's this ice cube on the table, and you heat it up, and, you know, it's 26 degrees, 27, 28, 29, and still, the, nothing has happened, the ice cube's still just sitting there, 30, 31, 
And then you go from 31 to 32 degrees. This is one degree shift, no different than all the other shifts that came before it. But suddenly you hit this phase transition and the ice cube melts. And the process of building better habits and getting results is often a lot like that. You know, like you, you put in work for a couple months and you're like, well, I've been, you know, I've been working out for three months. Why hasn't my body changed? And uh, it's often like if you complain about working for a little while and not seeing results, it's kind of like complaining about heating an ice cube from 25 to 31 degrees. Like the work is not being wasted. It's just being stored. And you need to continue to stick with it for you to cross that threshold and unleash that kind of latent potential that you're that you're building up. And um, that can be really hard to remember in the moment. You know, I mean, this is one of the things that's frustrating or challenging about building a, a better habit or changing your life in some way or working on a new project is that those, those outcomes are delayed. Um, but the work that you're putting in today often counts for much more than the immediate result that you realize. And so, uh, it becomes key to stick with it over the long run. Yeah. I mean, even with my own book launch, when it didn't live up to my expectations, I kind of saw that, okay, we've passed that threshold that most people don't of a thousand copies. And I said, all right, you know what, we're going to hit the New York Times bestseller list. It's time to switch to playing the long game and think of it, you know, okay, how am I going to sell small amounts every week as opposed to a ton of them in one go? Uh, Well, this is, I mean, people, you can just see this playing out. It's it's like fairly obvious when you think about uh, your normal habits. So like any... Any behavior produces multiple outcomes across time. And so it, it produces both often an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. So like if you, you know, bad habits are usually the case where the immediate outcome is favorable. So like you, you eat a cookie right now and it's sugary and tasty and enjoyable. And so the immediate outcome is favorable. But the ultimate outcome is if you continue that habit, then, you know, a month from now or a year from now, you'll gain weight. So the ultimate outcome is unfavorable. Good habits are often the reverse. The, the immediate outcome of working really hard on a book launch is that you're tired and it took a lot of time and effort. Um, the ultimate outcome might be that you sell more books a month from now or a year from now from that interview that you recorded and you know people are still listening to and so on. Same way with going to the gym. Like the, What's the immediate outcome for working out for a week straight? I mean, it's not really a whole lot. Your body doesn't really look different. The scale is usually about the same. You're tired. You're sore. Uh, the immediate outcome is often unfavorable. But if you continue the habit, then a month from now or a year from now, you'll be in shape. And so a lot of the challenge of building good habits that's and sticking with good habits and breaking bad ones is figuring out ways to take the long-term consequences of your bad habits and pull those into the immediate moment so you feel a little bit of that pain right now and have a reason not to do it and finding ways to pull the long-term rewards of your good habits and take those benefits and bring them into the immediate moment. So you feel a little bit of pleasure and have a reason to repeat it right now. And um, that's one of the central challenges for changing habits. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Definitely. Well, I'm going to totally steal that habits are the, the, the compound interest of self-improvement, but I will make sure I link your book and, and this interview and, and when I mention it. Uh, nice. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, that feel free. Like, just what we we're talking about, ideas for blog posts. The moment you said that, I was like, that's a blog post. And it was funny because I had the same experience with Chris Bailey when he said the state of your attention determines the state of your life. I said, Chris, I'm going to steal that, but I'm going to link your book when I publish it. There you it. go. Sounds uh, good. But you know, I think this really is is uh, indicative of the sentiment that you expressed in the book, where you said you should be far more concerned with your current uh, trajectory than with your current results. And yet, if you look at the world we live in, we live very much in a results oriented world where we've quantified our humanity with you know fan and follower counts. The way you're measured is results. If you look at a job description, it says results oriented person. Uh, how do you find that balance? How do you find that balance between being committed to the results that you want, but concerning yourself with your current trajectory? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think the way to find the balance is by, and I, I divide this up in the second chapter of the book where I talk about outcome-based habits versus identity-based habits. Mm-hmm. So outcome-based habits are habits that are built around the result. And this is usually the way that people 
go about the process of change. They think about, um, you know, like what kind of outcome do I want to achieve? You know, okay, I want to lose 20 pounds in the next six months, or I want to earn six figures this year, or I want to, um, whatever it is. And then they come up with a plan for achieving that. So, okay, I want to earn six figures. That means I need to make like 20 sales calls a day or something like that. Or if I want to lose 20 pounds, I need to follow this diet and go to the gym four days a week. And they don't really give any thought to the third level of behavior change, which is what I would call your identity. So it's all about the the outcome and the process, but not really about the identity. I think the reverse is actually a, a more productive way to to focus on this for the long run. So the question you can ask yourself is, all right, uh, you know, I want to lose 20 pounds in six months. Well, who is the type of person that could lose weight? Well, maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so then you focus on building that identity first. So you start with saying, okay, I want to become the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And then the habit that you can perform, well, now it can be very different. It doesn't have to be something super impressive. Like you could just, if you have a really busy day, you could just do five push-ups. And it's easy to dismiss that if you have a results-only mindset because you're like, well, five push-ups isn't going to get me in shape. But sometimes it's not about the results. Sometimes it's about reinforcing being that type of person. And the value of casting a vote for that identity of doing five push-ups, even on a day when you're busy or when circumstances weren't ideal, is that you start to believe that about yourself. And so then you turn around and you have like every reason to go to the gym each week because that's just who you are. You're the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And the same thing can be said for pretty much any other habit. You know, like the goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. The goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. And once you adopt that identity, it's a very empowering place to approach your daily habits and process from because it's, it's one thing to say like, I want this, but it's something very different to say, I am this. And, uh, and so in a sense, true behavior change is really identity change because once you've adopted the identity, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe you are. Mm -hmm. So you talked about a two-step identity change process. Can you tell us exactly what that is for somebody who wants to do this? I know you kind of alluded to it just now. We've talked kind of a, a framework level, but how do you actually apply this tactically? Yeah, so I hinted at it a little bit. The the two steps are the first step is you need to decide who you want to become or what you want that identity to look like. And that can be, you know, those are big questions. And so sometimes people get a little uh, hung up on those. I mean, you can do exercises like what are my core values or what are my principles or some of those like big picture uh, exercises and that can help. But there's also a really strategic way to do it, which is you just say, okay, maybe I don't know the identity, but I do know what kind of results I want. So let me start there. Okay, what's the result I want? I want to make six figures next year. All right. So then who is the type of person that could do that? And that's the question that kind of clarifies what that identity looks like. Well, maybe the type of person who makes six figures is the type of person who, you know, like makes three sales calls every day. And so then you're focused on um, the second step, which is, okay, I want to become the type of person who makes sales calls every day. And then the second step is you start to try to carve out like some small win that reinforces that identity, some small habit that casts a vote for being that type of person. And um, that's where the usefulness of, of small habits really comes into play. It doesn't have to be something huge and significant to reinforce the identity. As long as it makes you feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm being that type of person, then it can be valuable. Um, and so, uh, it's really a combination of clarifying what you what you want your identity to be, and then finding small wins that reinforce that desired identity. 
Okay, great. Uh, let's talk about one other huge part of the book, uh, which are the four laws of behavioral change. Can you explain to us what they are and how they apply to our lives and how they, they help us to change our habits? Sure. So in the book, I lay out this four-step process that describes essentially how all human behavior works, um, but certainly how habits work. Um, I, I don't know. There are probably some outliers and use cases that don't fit, but it's, it's pretty uh, extensive in the, the application that it has. And each of those four stages has a law associated with it, or what I call the four laws of behavior change. And effectively, you can think of them like different levers that you can pull. And when the levers are in the right positions, building good habits is easy. And when they're in the wrong positions, building good habits is really hard. Um, And so which tools you kind of pull out of your toolbox depend on the situation, but all four can be very useful for building better habits. So to run through them real quick, the the first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. Uh, You want the cues or the prompts of your habits to be as obvious as possible. The second is to make it attractive. So the more attractive an opportunity is, the more likely we are to perform it. The third is to make it easy. The easier a habit is, the more likely uh, you will be to complete it. And the fourth is make it satisfying. And the fourth law of behavior change is really about getting you to repeat a behavior in the future. If a, if a behavior is satisfying, if you have some kind of positive emotional signal associated with it, then it's like uh, it tells your brain, hey, this felt good. You should do this again next time. So you really need all four for a habit to, to stick. And then the, the great part about this framework is if you want to break a bad habit, you can just invert those four laws. So for a good habit, you want to make it attractive, make it obvious, make it easy, make it satisfying. For a bad habit, you want to make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult, and make it unsatisfying. And uh, of course, the book goes over many, many ways to, to do both of those. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, let's talk briefly about this notion of systems versus goals. Uh, I think that to me, that's one of those things where it, when I saw that, I was like, well, yeah, my own life is, is perfect evidence of this. And I think that people often set goals, but they don't realize that systems really make goals possible. In fact, often you tend to exceed what the goal is when you have an effective system. Yeah, there's this weird, I mean, this is so first of all, this is coming from someone who is, uh, for many years was very goal oriented. Like I would set goals for the grades I wanted to get in class for the you know amount of money I wanted my business to earn for the number of email subscribers I wanted to add, like all kinds of stuff. Um, but at some point I realized that, you know, I've been setting all these goals and uh, some of them I accomplished, but a lot of them I failed on. And so it was like, well, clearly having the goal wasn't the thing that determined uh, my success. And you see this in a lot of different domains, you know, like the, the winners and losers in any particular area, a lot of the time they have the same goals, you know? So like every candidate who applies for a job has the goal of getting the job. Every Olympian has a goal of winning the gold medal. Like they, they all want the same thing. Um, so if the goal is the same between the people who succeed and those who don't, then the goal cannot be the thing that actually makes the difference for achieving progress. So um, I started to ask like, well, what, what would be that thing? And Scott Adams is one of the first people I saw talk about this, the cartoonist behind Dilbert, but this, this kind of idea behind systems versus goals. And so, um, I think goals are useful. I think they're, they're useful for setting a sense of direction for figuring out like what area you need to focus on, but they're really, they're mostly useful in that like directional sense of where to, to, uh, focus your attention and energy. Once you understand what area you want to work on, it's kind of more or less uh, useful to put the goal on the shelf, so to speak, and just focus on your system. And so what do I mean by that? Well, like you know, if you were a, um, you know, if you're a coach, if you're a basketball coach, your goal might be to win the championship, but your system is 
how you recruit new players and coaches, uh, what you do at practice each day, the type of recovery techniques that you use for your team, and all of that, all of those habits uh, put together make up the, the overall system. And this is actually one of the reasons why I chose the phrase atomic habits for the book, which is that um, atomic can mean multiple things. Like on the one hand, yes, it means tiny or small. And that's part of my philosophy that habits should be small and easy to do. But atomic can also mean the fundamental unit of a larger system. So atoms built into molecules, molecules built into compounds, and so on. And that's really what you're looking to build ultimately. It's not a single 1% improvement. It's like a collection of them, of a collection of small habits that are all organized in the same system and working toward like the same fundamental uh, direction or goal. And it's really more, much more about uh, focusing your energy and attention on building a better system than on worrying about the results or a particular goal. Um, part of this is because what you just mentioned, which is that, uh, you know, sometimes you'll overshoot the goal. If your system's really good, you'll achieve much more than you thought you were capable of. But the other thing is that goals, achieving a goal really only, uh, fixes something in your life for the moment. It only changes your life for the moment. Um, you know, if you, if you get really motivated to clean your room, you have like this messy room right now. Well, you spend a couple hours on that. Like you might end up with a clean room. Um, but if you don't change the sloppy and messy habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, then two weeks from now you end up with a dirty room again. And so this is just kind of like one of the ironies of life. A lot of the times we, we think that what needs to change are the results, but the results aren't the thing that needs to change. It's the process behind the results. It's the system behind the goal that we need to shift. And if you can change the inputs, the outputs will often change themselves. So uh, it's much more about like leading with a systems first mentality than a goals first mentality. Well, you brought up a messy room, which I think is is really uh, a perfect segue to talking about the role of environment, which we've beat to death here on Mistake Looker. I've dedicated an entire chapter of my own book to this because I believe it's so powerful. But I love what you said about this. You said you don't have to be the victim of your environment. You can also be the architect of it. Mm. So talk to me about your perspective on the role that environment plays in behavior and how a person becomes the architect of their environment. So I think that this cover uh, is, is covered in chapter six and 12 of Atomic Habits, and it influences both the first law of behavior change, so make it obvious, and the third law, make it easy. And let me just give you two quick examples. So for building a good habit, um, for a long time, I would brush my teeth twice a day, but I wouldn't floss consistently. And I realized that one of the issues was that the floss was like hidden away in the drawer in the bathroom, and I just wouldn't remember to take it out. And then the other issue, and it sounds kind of silly, but uh, I didn't like the feeling of wrapping the floss around my finger. And so what I did was I bought some of the pre-made flossers uh, and I got a little bowl and I put them in the bowl and I set it right next to my toothbrush on the counter. And so as soon as I finished brushing my teeth, I put the toothbrush down, pick a flosser up, floss it, and then I was done. And that was pretty much all I needed to do to build that habit. I, you know, I did that a couple of years ago. I've been flossing twice a day for, for years now. And it was really just, I need to make it more obvious. So take it out of the drawer and put it on the counter. And I need to make it a little easier. So remove the friction of wrapping it around my finger and just kind of have the, the pre-made one there. Yeah. So that's an example of environment design for building a good habit. If you want to break a bad habit, then again, you just want to invert these laws. So you want to make it invisible, make it difficult. And um, take the, the habit of like watching television or playing video games or something like that. Well, if you walk into pretty much any living room, all the couches and chairs face the television. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? Um, <laughs> and 
if uh, you can take a variety of steps here, right? You could like move a chair so that it doesn't face the TV or something. You could take um, the TV and put it inside a cabinet or wall unit so that it's behind a set of doors and you're less likely to see it. You could take the remote control and put it in a um, in a drawer in the coffee table or something like that. And all of that is reducing exposure, so making it more invisible or making it less obvious. But you also could increase the friction associated with the task. So like, um, you know, you could take the remote control batteries out. And uh, so that adds an extra five or 10 seconds each time you turn on the TV. Maybe that's enough time for you to be like, do I really want to watch this or am I just turning it on mindlessly? Or you could unplug the TV after each use and then only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch out loud. So you aren't allowed to just like pull Netflix up and find something. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you really want to be extreme about it, you could take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out when you really (laughs) want to watch something. Yeah. But the point here is that there are varying degrees, right? And you're just trying to make the, you're trying to increase the steps between you and your bad habits and reduce the steps between you and your good ones. And if you live in an environment where the good choice is the obvious easy choice, and the bad choice is higher friction and less obvious, then imagine the the cumulative impact of making like 100 of those little choices. Um, you're kind of constantly being nudged in the right direction. Yeah. And so the, the power of environment design from a physical standpoint is that um, it can make the good choices easier and the bad choices harder. And then, of course, there's the whole social environment too, which I kind of think about separately. But, uh, but those are two ways to, to utilize environment design to build better habits. So yeah, it's interesting because I, I think that, you know, for me, it was one of the simplest things I was like, okay, you know what, I'm for, you know, for two years, I've been writing books and I've basically wore a black t-shirt and jeans every day for those two years. I was like, you know what, finish with two books, new chapter, new uniform. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to dress better. And it's interesting by just changing that one thing, like I noticed how differently I carry myself and just how differently I behave throughout the day by putting on a nicer shirt. Because when you're working from home, if you're like in your pajamas or whatever, you kind of have this, I think we fail to recognize that almost all of our physical objects have associations with them. Mm. This is so, I think that's a crucial point. This is something I talk about in the book that we should Stop viewing our environment as uh, filled with objects and start thinking about it as filled with relationships. Mm. And it's really about the relationships or the associations that you have with those objects that determines how you respond and how they impact or influence your thinking and your habits and so on. You know, for one person, their couch might be the place where they read a book every night. For another person, their couch might be the place where they eat a bowl of ice cream and watch uh, Netflix for an hour. And, um, it's the object is the same, but the relationship that you have with it can be different and that it can heavily influence your, your habits. And it also, this, this provides a little bit of an insight into what we need to do when we're building new habits, which is that if you try to build a new habit in an environment where you already have a lot of these relationships, a lot of these associations, then it's kind of like you're trying to fight or overpower the, the stimuli or the, the associations that are already built. Uh And that can be a challenging thing. So it's often easier to build a new habit in a new context. Um, So, you know, for example, if you wanted to start the habit of journaling, maybe you go to a new coffee shop that's like close to where you work, but you just don't usually go in there. And now that becomes the space where you journal and you don't have any previous associations that you're trying to like overcome with that space or in your, in your personal, uh, you know, if you're in your apartment or your home or whatever, you could do this just by carving out like a corner or something, you know, you could like get a new chair and put it in the corner. And that is now like the reading chair. And you, you never like browse on your phone, your iPad, you don't watch TV when you're in that chair, all you do is read. 
And similar to you putting on a nice shirt and kind of like flipping this mental switch and getting in the mode to, to work and be professional, um, we can do the same thing with our spaces by creating a, a space where only one thing happens in this context and becomes easier to, to root the habit in that physical part of the environment. Hmm. Wow. So I, I want to ask you about one more thing, because I, I remember right after reading about this, uh, I immediately told my friend Mike about it. And I was so you said a commitment device is a choice that you make in the present that controls your actions in the future. It's a way to lock in future behavior, bind you to good habits and restrict you from bad ones. Uh, and I remember the, the, the story that struck me, despite numerous efforts to reduce my social media use, and I've gotten really good. I've checked, I, I remember looking at rescue time yesterday saying, oh, wow, I spent a total of an hour and 46 minutes on Facebook in all of September. That's progress. But I loved the story you told about uh, your assistant. So could you share that with us? <laughs> yeah, so I, um, I've been working on Atomic Habits for three years now. And I signed the book deal and uh, did some research and writing and for the first year. And I realized that like, man, there's a lot of work that I need to do here. And I need to make sure I stay focused. So for the remainder of the project, uh, we created this internal rule for me where every uh, Monday, my assistant would log me out of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and then reset all the passwords and wouldn't tell me what they were. And then I would work all week. And then on Friday, she would give me the passwords and I could log in and browse social media over the weekend and use it. And then on Monday, we would do it all over again. And um, it ended up being super effective. I mean, it was, really, it was a really nice thing and got me to, uh, to work hard on the book and, uh, and eventually finish it. Um, you know, and now here we are three years later with it, with it launching. Yeah. What, what did you notice during that period of not having access to social? Were there times where you found yourself trying to go there only to discover that you couldn't open it because you didn't have your passwords? Well, what's funny is that it's interesting how quickly you get deconditioned, how much you realize like, oh, actually, I don't need this that much. Um, I remember this. I So I lived abroad a few years ago. And um, this was, I guess this was maybe eight years ago now. And um, at the time, there wasn't, I mean, the iPhone had barely launched. Like there there wasn't like this extensive network of, of cell phone towers and stuff that there is now. And um, so... Anyway, I, I just didn't have a cell phone for a few months while I was living abroad. I think it was like three months. And uh, I remember there were like two times in that three-month span where I was like, man, I really wish I had a phone right now. But the rest of the time, uh, it's remarkable how quickly I was just like, yeah, I guess I don't need it. It's not that big of a deal, which is, sounds crazy now because I think the <laughs> average adult has their phone like 150 times a day. Yeah. So, um, and that number just goes up every year. You know, we just get more and more addicted to them. But um I think that it's an instructive thing when thinking about habits in general, which is that, so, you know, the third law of behavior change is make it easy. And so the less friction that is associated with a habit, the more likely you are to, to perform it. So, you know, if your phone is on you all the time, you're going to check it all the time. If social media is easy to get to and there's no friction with it and you can just tap Instagram as soon as you open your phone or go to Twitter as soon as you think of it, yeah. um, then you're going to do that all the time. And so I was just trying to find a way to increase the friction associated with the task. And what you realize is that when it's harder to do, you don't actually want to do it that much. Like I didn't, I do this thing now where I, um, I keep my phone in another room outside of my yep. office in Same. the morning. It was pretty much until I, I try to do it till lunch every day. And what's crazy is I'd never go upstairs to get it. You know, it's not that far away. It's like 45 seconds away, but I just decide I did. I don't want it for, um, if it was on me, I would check it, you know, every three minutes. But when it's not on me, it's not worth 45 seconds of work. So it's kind of in that way, social media and phones occupy an interesting space in our lives where we, 
we want to do them, but only a little bit. And uh, so in that way, I think it's kind of like social media and phones are often like the mental candy in our information diet. And more difficult things like reading books or writing an article is kind of like the healthy food in our information diet. And if you get rid of the mental candy, um, a lot of the time you'll be like, oh, I actually did want to eat something healthy. <laughs> well, now you know why, why I wanted a physical copy of your book instead of the digital one. Uh, there you go. Well, it, it, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about, you know, so they rolled out iOS 12 and I was like, okay, you guys completely failed here because what you did was you created a, a way to set up friction, but you also made it virtually, you know, like it, effortless to completely ignore the friction because it, it comes up with a message that says, do you want to ignore the time limit for data? Now, I don't know if they have a way to, to undo that, but I was like, this is kind of a fail when you consider the behavioral science involved here. Hmm. What, so wait, how's it so, work again? Explain. So iOS 12 rolled out a thing to help people reduce screen time and you can set time limits on the apps. But when you hit your time limit, it says, you know, do you want to ignore the time limit for five minutes or do you want to ignore the time limit altogether for today? And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, this is completely a fail. Like who didn't take into account human behavior when they designed this? Right. Yeah. If you can just opt out instantly. Yeah. It's like, well, like, that's, that's kind <laughs> how much friction are you creating part, really? You know? Uh, so I have two other questions and, and we'll, we'll wrap things up here. I was just getting to the end of the book today and you talked about the paperclip method and I thought to myself, okay, you know what? That's a really interesting way to show yourself uh, visible progress. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get a jar of marbles or a couple of jars of marbles for the things that I want to do. So can you, can yeah. you talk to us about that briefly? So uh, this is just a, a tactic for making habits more satisfying and increasing the odds that you're going to stick to them. And it's what I call the paperclip strategy. I first came across it from this guy named Trent Dursmid. And uh, he was this young stockbroker. He's like one of his first jobs, maybe 23, 24 years old. And uh, he, within two years, he built the largest book of business in the firm. And the way that he did it was just with this simple habit where he had two cups or mugs or uh, little bowls on his desk. And uh, one of them was empty and the other one had 120 paper clips in it. And each day he would pick up the phone and make a sales call and then put the phone down and move a paperclip over. And he would do this all day long until he had moved 120 paper clips. And so that one habit, that kind of fundamental habit of just making sales calls each day, um, was the thing that led to him being successful in the firm. And then he got a promotion, this bigger job and so on. And uh, that strategy of some type of visual measurement, some type of visual tracking can be a really useful way to make habits more satisfying and give you a reason to repeat them in the moment. You know, so I, I don't think that you need to measure every habit. And I talk a lot more about measurement uh, in the book, so I'll, I'll leave it for there. Yeah. But for some habits, for the ones that are important for you, it is really helpful to measure a few of them. And one of the things that measurement does is it makes your previous actions, your previous identity visible, and it makes your progress visible. And that's a really powerful thing because there are some days where naturally you're going to wake up and not feel like working hard or you feel sluggish or you just don't feel like you've made much progress. And you're kind of like, why would I bother working this again? But if you can look at the bin of paper clips and see how many you've moved over, or if you uh, do habit tracking on like a calendar and you make an X on that day and you can look back and say, oh, you know, there are 15 days this month where I showed up and I, you know, did yoga or I showed up and I uh, wrote a blog post. Well, now you have like actual visual proof of the type of identity that you've had recently or the type of person that you've been. And uh, that can be a very motivating thing for getting you to stick with it. And then the the last thing that it does, which is the the fourth law of behavior change, make it satisfying, is that it gives you just a little bit of immediate satisfaction in the moment. And that can be really nice when you, you know, um, like I track all my workouts, for example. And the feeling of writing down my last set 
and closing the notebook and knowing that I just logged another workout, there's a little bit of satisfaction there. It feels good. You know, like maybe my body hasn't changed yet. Maybe I haven't gotten, you know, as strong as I want to be. Um, and I need to show up for a few more months still. But uh, I get the immediate satisfaction of tracking it right now. And so when you layer all of that stuff together, little strategies, visual measurement strategies like the paperclip strategy or a bowl of marbles like what you suggested or uh, habit tracking on a calendar, those are all really useful ways to make it a little more satisfying in the moment and to increase your motivation over the long run. Mm, wow. Well, I think that makes a fitting end to a conversation that has led to many ideas for me, and I'm guessing it will for a lot of other people. So I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've already been asked before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it has to do with the authenticity of your own experience. Um, so there are 107 billion people, I think, who have lived throughout history, and there are about 7 billion alive right now. So the historian Niall Ferguson has this great quote where he says, the, the dead outnumber the living 14 to 1. Um, and now it's more like 15 to 1. But the only reason that we have incredible, crazy things in modern society, why we have airplanes and podcasts and the internet and all these other advantages of, uh, of the modern world is that those 107 billion people have tried something and experimented and tested a little bit. And sometimes, a lot of times they failed, but occasionally they came across an idea that was insightful and worked. And it's kind of like this huge mountain of cumulative knowledge that we've all just been adding to over the, the span of human history. And the advantage for you and I is we get to stand on top of that mountain. We don't have to start down at the bottom again. We get all the inherited lessons and insights from the people who came before us. And so if you, um, what can you add to that mountain, basically? You know, what, what's something part about your, what's some part about your authentic experience that you can take this knowledge that has been inherited by us that you can just imitate from all the other people and add your little bit of magic to it? And I think that if each of us can do that, if you can like add just a grain of sand to that pile, then humanity is better off for it. And uh, you'll be unmistakable because of it, because it's the, the grain of sand that you added and nobody else did. Awesome. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been phenomenal. Where can people find more about you, your work and uh, the book? Yeah, thanks, Rini. Well, so the book is called Atomic Habits, and you can find it at AtomicHabits.com. And in addition to the, the book being there, I have a secret chapter that's not included in the book. You can get that. Um, there's some templates and downloads, exercises to help you implement some of the ideas. Chapter by chapter audio commentary from me on like why I wrote each chapter and what I was thinking behind it. And uh, a variety of other bonuses and whatnot. But anyway, all that is at AtomicHabits.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.